BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Dorian, the deadly campfire, and the devastating super tornado outbreak of 2011. These disasters likely bring to mind powerful images you saw from communities hardest hit by these extreme weather events. In a world with increasingly large numbers of disasters, it's becoming more apparent that we need to work to understand how vulnerabilities in these communities impact risk. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Strader, Assistant Professor of Geography and the Environment at Philadelphia. University. In addition to his knowledge of the atmosphere, his work also focuses on hazards and risks associated with extreme weather. We'll discuss the various tools he uses to determine areas of risk, as well as ways we can understand and prepare our society to reduce future effects of disasters. Dr. Strader, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Strader. He is a professor at Villanova. I uh, got his bachelor's degree in Indiana University in 2010, a master's from Northern Illinois, and a PhD at Northern Illinois University as well. And I suspect we know some of the same people like Dr. Walker Ashley, uh, Mace Bentley, and others because I'm very familiar with those colleagues at Northern Illinois. Before we get, get going, Stephen, there's something I always ask every Weather Geeks guest. How did you become interested in the field of meteorology and geography? Yeah, I'm sure my my story is uh, very similar to others. Um, I grew up with uh, somewhat of a fear of thunderstorms. And um, of course, my fear led me to sort of intrigue and, and trying to figure out how to um, better understand the weather so I wasn't so afraid. So the fear led to fascination and obsession. And um, what really happened was I in, in high school, I was sort of on the path to become some some type of engineer electrical or, or acoustical, some type of engineer. And um, the uh, 2005, uh, November 6, 2005, Evansville tornado um, hit close to home. It, it, it killed one of my um, my mom's best friend's husband. Um, it hit the, the Eastbrook Mobile Home Park. It killed 25 individuals. Um, and it was in November in the middle of the night. Um, and it was an, an EF3 tornado that, that ended up um, being very devastating and missed my house by about a half a mile to a mile. So that sort of triggered me to think, oh, there, there's something to this and, and, and can we do this? At the same time, I was that type of person who was, um, my dad would designate me as the map reader or the navigator on trips. And I would sit and look at maps for hours and, and, and sort of read them and try to understand them. The hope was, was that I could do something with both. And that's how I really ended up as a geographer and an atmospheric scientist all at once. And your story is very enlightening for me because I know some of your work and the work that I'm sure we'll talk about as it relates to uh, tornadoes and risk and populations and mobile homes, et cetera. So that's fascinating to hear some of the sort of linkages to some things that you've experienced earlier in your life. Now, you do describe yourself as a geographer, atmospheric scientist, and the GIS analyst, uh, as someone also that has its home department in geography geography at the University of Georgia. Tell the Weather Geeks listeners a little bit about how those worlds collide. 
yeah, I think it all comes down to space. And by space, I mean geographic space, where things are located and patterns that we see. As humans, we, we tend to try to organize things and put things into categories and groups to better understand them. The key is, is, is that geography allows us to look at things like tornadoes and snowstorms and, and tropical storms and, and sort of make sense of them in the spatial world. And, and it makes sense to sort of marry the two, at least in my mind. And when it comes to people on the Earth's surface that are impacted by these events, really that's where atmospheric science and geography come together, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, as the director of an atmospheric sciences program, fully fully sort of certified meteorology degree program, but uh, we live within a geography department at Georgia, and I think that makes a lot of sense. It was one of the things that attracted me to that particular department, uh, which I know your colleague Walker Ashley received his PhD from. Now, tell us a little bit about your program at Villanova. Yeah, so um, we're a small program. Um, we just had our 10-year anniversary. Um, I was hired about three or four years ago as a, as a cluster hire. We're largely uh, an environmental science and geography program. I'm, there's two atmospheric scientists here. Um, I'm the more research-heavy one of them, um, but we, we're a growing department. We have um, really good students. Um, we have a really good success rate. We're, we're really pride ourselves on those students getting jobs in their field. Um, we're about 90% of students getting jobs in their field a year after graduation. Um, so we really try to get them out and doing experiential learning. I think that's the key is, is so many times we can get stuck in the lab. You know, as someone who teaches um, geographic information systems or, or GIS, we get stuck behind the computer a lot, but we forget that there's a whole other world out there and to open your eyes. And of course, you and I both know as atmospheric scientists, we, we, we tend to, I tend to tell my students to, to put down their, their cell phones and, and look up every once in a while. So our, our program is really prides ourselves on students getting their hands, what we like to say, getting their hands dirty. And we're talking with Dr. Steven Strader from Villadova University, and we're talking about mitigating disasters and their impacts on society. Now, your website makes the following statement. Disasters are a product of society and are caused by extreme events interacting with human, social, and physical vulnerabilities. Can you sort of decode that for the average listener? Yeah, so I always tell people to think about the, the, the worst tornado they've ever ever heard of and what tornado event sticks out in their mind. And they're always going to tell us about a tornado that hit a big city or hit a large population center or killed a lot of people or, you know, and so on and so forth. And then I say, think about the tornado that occurred in the middle of a field, a farmer's wheat field or a cornfield. We don't really remember those. And so, so what I'm saying is, when we think about disasters, we can't think about just the tornado or the hail or the tropical storm event. We have to think about who it impacts. We don't necessarily care from an impact standpoint. Um, the farmer might care, but we don't necessarily care that the, that the tornado goes through the middle of a cornfield and doesn't hit anybody. That's a good day from a severe weather scientist standpoint. However, if we take that same tornado event and we place it over a population or it, it, it occurs over a population, that's when we start taking note and realizing the problems that we have to face. So when we think about disasters, disasters are really a product of society. It's where we are interacting with that. 
tornadoes were here long before we were here as people. You know, they were, you know, going maybe a few bison or buffalo out in the plains were a little bit afraid, but we weren't um, because we weren't here yet. So I think the key here is, is, is as we affect society, as we're growing across society, we really um, have to take some of this initiative into our, our own minds and, and sort of say we play a role in, in these hazard impacts, which is starting to come along in the last 20, 30 years. We're, we're opening up that dialogue. Now, I want to pick up on something you said, and we're going to sort of discuss the expanding bullseye and urban challenges uh, at length in this podcast. But I know that people like James Spann and others sometimes uh, make the point that we have an urban bias in our coverage of severe weather in, in the sense that even media, they'll sort of break in for um, if a tornado's headed to Atlanta or Philadelphia, but the outlying areas, there doesn't seem to be this sense of urgency. And I, I think you just gave some good context, perhaps, on, on why that is. But do, do you think we do have an urban bias? As a, because there are, I mean, not as many, but there certainly are people and lives and property in rural spaces, too. Yeah, I think um, I'm actually more concerned about those individuals than I am those in larger cities. Uh, individuals who live in those rural areas tend to have greater vulnerabilities than those in um, cities, especially in the South. Um, you don't see that necessarily. And, and of course, there's breakdowns of where that relationship happens. But I'm actually concerned about that person who's isolated out in the middle of the country that doesn't get the warning because they don't have the safety nets a lot of times that are in place. They don't have any relative or, or friend nearby that they can run to flee to if they need to take shelter. So I, I worry about those individuals more than I do um, those in the cities. There tends to be a more self-reliant attitude, and therefore it's closing them off from the services they might need after a disaster or after a, uh, an impact. Um, so, yeah, I think reaching those audiences is something that we should still strive to do and probably um, pick up our, our, our abilities or at least strive even harder to reach those individuals, yeah, especially in the Southeast. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know you all and your colleagues have done work in the Southeast because there are some socioeconomic factors in terms of, uh, you know, income and where people live that make them particularly vulnerable. But even as I think about some of those people in those rural areas, perhaps out in the Midwest or Tornado Alley, may not have the sort of fastest internets compared to what we have in the, in the uh, urban areas and may have some limited ways of getting information. So I could certainly resonate with your statement that uh, that there may be an increasing vulnerability in those areas. It seems a little bit understudied. But I, I want to kind of circle around to a 2018 study that you had with Walker Ashley, who I've mentioned before. And you talk about this expanding bullseye effect. What do you mean by an expanding bullseye effect? Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good um, question, and and it's sort of a um, a theoretical exercise. And, and what we like to say is, um, imagine you're an archer and you're pulling back your your bow and arrow, and you release it at the target, and the target is a hundred, it's fifty feet away, and the target's the size of a quarter. Your odds of hitting that quarter are fairly low if you're an inexperienced archer like myself. But over time, if that size of the target continues to get larger and larger, the odds of getting a bullseye is increased. Well, we like to think of 
events like tornadoes or hail events or wildfires as the arrow, whereas societal growth, the urban development, is the expanding bullseye. So imagine, close your eyes and imagine where you grew up. And if you grew up in the city, what did it look like? More than likely, if you grew up in an urban or suburban area, the city has expanded and grown over time. Places like Chicago, Dallas-Fort Worth, Oklahoma City, Atlanta, they've sprawled outward over time. So that means that tornado or that hazard event that would have hit nothing 40, 50 years ago and been one of those events that we just watched go off in the cornfield um, is now going through the heart of a subdivision. So it's bringing that, that disaster standpoint from a societal and a, an event impact. I like to say that societal changes and societal growth and the hazard itself are two sides to the same disaster coin. If any of them change, society changes underneath the, the developed footprint. If that's changing and the hazard's changing due to climate change or some other type of, of a factor, then we're altering the disaster landscape. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Strader from Villanova University. We're talking about extreme weather events, disasters, and risks to society. And uh, he and his colleagues have been doing some interesting work that I want to really dive deeply into. Let me just read something here and let you react to it. Tornadoes impact um, uh, mobile homes. As f- uh, let me just start that over. Tornado impact potential on mobile homes is 4.5 times. That's three hundred. 50% greater in Alabama than in Kansas because Alabama in comparison to Kansas is represented one by a greater number of mobile homes and two a more smalling mobile home, a sprawling mobile home distributions. Uh, findings reveal that the Southeast mobile home residents are one of the most socioeconomically and demographically marginalized populations in the U.S. and thus more susceptible to tornado impact and death. This is research that you have published in collaboration with colleagues. And so this idea of a Dixie Alley that we've heard people talk about takes on additional significance because your work suggests that there are more vulnerable populations there. Can you discuss this? Yeah. For for years, we uh, have sort of thrown up our hands and said more mobile and manufactured homes, more odds of fatalities, more deaths, more destruction. Reality is, is it's a little bit more complex than that. It's more than just a greater number of manufactured and mobile homes. It's also their geography. A good example is if you look at Alabama, roughly 80% of Alabama's mobile and manufactured housing stock, all those mobile homes are not in mobile home parks. They're actually in the rural areas. They're not in parks or communities. They're isolated on plots of land, or they're together with one or two other mobile homes that might be a relative or a close friend. So they're not actually in mobile home parks. The opposite's true 
everywhere else. If you go to the Midwest, the Northeast, the Central Plains, there's zoning laws and, and agriculture in general restricts their um, the, these mobile homes to be built in rural areas. They have to be built and zoned into these mobile home parks or communities. So what that does is it increases the odds that when a tornado occurs, you have a mobile home that's impacted, especially in the southeast. So what you're doing is you're increasing the odds that, that someone is killed, you're increasing the odds that someone is is uh, fatally injured or, or at least um, has a significant injury because of living in a mobile home. And it's not just that, but it's also that they're, yeah, the, the mobile homes are in the southeast, they're more dis- dis- sprawled and distributed across the landscape, but there's the socioeconomic and demographic and, and, and social vulnerability components, too. They tend to live in poverty more. They tend to be disenfranchised or subject to having to rely on uh, on social systems, um, whether it's through uh, food stamps or some type of, of government program. They tend to you know, be very isolated in how they behave. They don't have communal ties like they do in urban areas. So what we're doing is setting the stage for disasters in the southeast time and time again by how we're building and the social norms that we're sticking to, particularly in Mississippi, Alabama, um, Georgia, and Tennessee. And as a part of this work, you have developed something called the Socioeconomic and Demographic Vulnerability Index, or SEDV. Is yeah. this some type of academic exercise, or are there users? who who? Why would you develop this index, and who uses it? Yeah, so this was part of um, the work that that Dr. Ashley and I conducted a few years ago. And what we were trying to do was um, there's a lot of vulnerability indices out there. There are ways of taking all these factors based on findings of prior research and say, this is what the person in this region this is their vulnerability. They tend to, they have lower income, they tend to be larger families, and so on and so forth. There's different factors that make up these individuals. So what we were trying to do is develop a specific index or a specific type of way of looking at just tornado vulnerability. So housing stock plays a a really crucial role. If they live in a mobile or manufactured home, that sort of ratchets up or cranks up the, the vulnerability knob. If they um, are living in the rural areas, that that also turns up the knob. So it's a way of taking all these factors and trying to say, how much more vulnerable is this population compared to that population? So it's a way of quickly assessing all these variables together. It's not a perfect way of doing it, but the hope is that we can use this and say, these individuals we need to target with educational outreach programs passing this information to the National Weather Service local offices or emergency managers and saying, this subset of the population is more vulnerable. You need to go educate them or at least go talk to them and figure out what's going on if we can help them. It's a way of trying to tackle a very difficult concept. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very important work. And I appreciate what you're doing. I wanted to pivot back to something you were talking about earlier when we were talking about mobile homes, because I like to use this show as an information beacon for people as well. Um, Do you have advice for people that are living in mobile homes uh, in terms of what they should do if they know that their region is under threat for tornado watch that day? I mean, what are just some of the best practices that you've heard? Yeah, so that's that's a perfect. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that's it's critical. Is um, too too many times what we see is mobile manufacturer residents. They know that their homes aren't safe. They don't want to be in their homes during these tornado events. There's the assumption that they are stubborn and they don't want to leave. 
The real problem is they don't know where to go. So your, your homework for these individuals, the homework is for them to figure out where their local shelters are, when they open, and how to get there, and be able to do it with the drop of a hat. I like to think of this as when we were kids, we all learned how to have, have a plan to get out of your house in case of a fire. I remember practicing that as a kid, and, and there was a lot of educational outreach saying, here's what you do if your house is on fire. We should be doing the same thing from child to adults on how to get to these these shelters, particularly if you live in a mobile or manufactured home. When the tornado watch comes out, that should be your signal to get to the shelter. Whatever you have to do to get there. If you're at work, stay at work longer. Don't go to your mobile home. I think the key here is to give yourself a plan, a plan of protection. The last place you want to be during a mobile during a, a tornado event is your manufacturer mobile home. I think that's key. So the tornado watch is really important for everyone else. You can use these same advice. You can use the same type of mentality if you want to be extra cautious. If you live in a permanent home, um, there's certainly steps that you can take. Taking any protective action. This, if you have a basement, get to your basement. If not, get to the center of your house um, and cover yourself with something. These are all things that we can all do. And and frankly, um, not forgetting them. A lot of times people do a good job once or twice a year at thinking about it. But when push comes to shove, they get really relaxed on it. So we have to sort of keep this in the forefront of our mind, especially if you're a mobile or manufactured home resident. This is great advice from Professor Stephen Strader from Villanova University, and I wanted to make sure we got that out there because oftentimes in research world that Dr. Strader and I operate in, we we do these studies and we have all of this information, but uh, there's never a so what or, okay, what do I do if I live in a mobile home? And so I appreciate the fact that you've had a very well thought out answer there on having a plan and, and even just knowing, and some places are more sort of uh, attuned to this than others, even just knowing the difference between watch and warning, because I'm still convinced, even though there are colleagues that disagree with me, I'm still convinced that there are people that don't know the difference. I talk to people all of the time that think a tornado watch means we're watching the tornado and a warning means we're warning that one may happen. And so it's important. I I think Brad Panovich, a TV meteorologist in Charlotte, has a really nice meme that gets around of... uh, cupcake watch and cupcake warning and cupcake watch has the ingredients and cupcake warning has the actual cupcake and I think that's a very powerful visual for helping people understand that what are your thoughts on sort of this the way we warn about tornadoes or severe weather yeah, I think I would I would wholeheartedly agree with um, your statement that that we assume um, people that the population is all uniform, that they all know what the difference is. I think it's okay to remind people what the difference is. And, you know, things that have been very successful, which happened, I believe, last week um, in Alabama, which is um, looking at, you know, severe weather awareness weeks. Um, in terms of, of warning and watch um, issuances, I think we're doing a really good job. Um, the National Weather Service, um, I point to the Beauregard, Alabama tornado last March. Um, that warning was really good. Um, there were four days out, there was um, this the Storm Prediction Center was highlighting that there was going to be a threat for severe weather. Up until 
two hours before the watch went out, so roughly about four hours before the tornado actually occurred, they were highlighting the exact area where the tornado occurred. Um, and then, of course, the National Weather Service in Birmingham did a fantastic job on the warning issuance as well. Unfortunately, we still had 23 people that died. So me as a disaster scientist and, and a geographer, I start asking questions about why. And I think that's where we're at is, is we're doing a good job warning, but we're starting to realize that there's more to just giving people time to get out. We have to better understand their decision making and their individual choices that they make could be the difference literally between life and death. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Back on the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Professor Stephen Strader from Villanova University. And you just talked about sort of how your research and this expanding bullseye is related to tornado risk and tornado damage and disaster. But you've extended this concept. I, I, I saw something in the New York Times where you talked about South Florida cities in relation to Hurricane Dorian in 2018. I think you did some work on wildfires as it relates to the campfire. Talk about how this work is relevant to hurricanes and wildfires. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the design of this expanding bullseye effect that, you know, Dr. Ashley and I came up with um, in a few years back. Um, it's, I guess it's going on back to 2013 now, was this idea that we're forgetting about people, we're forgetting about how we build and societal changes. So I just happened to pick the tornado as, as something that interested me. But the theory holds true for other hazards as well, um, tropical storms, wildfires, or even more important, potentially for um, economic reasons. So when we think about um, tropical storms and wildfires, it's the same concept. We're seeing more people building in areas that are prone to these hazard impacts. The best place I can think about this is coastal areas. Um, that's prime real estate. There's money to be made. Um, there's condos. There's hotels. All you have to do is just drive from Miami up to maybe Savannah, and you will see all all the development along the coast. And it's not even along the coast. It's actually on the barrier islands, which are there naturally to protect the coast we're developing on. And in some places, um, like in parts of Miami, there's not enough land to go around, so they will take sandbars and build homes on top of that. So we start thinking about whether it's smart or whether it's relevant or, or really ethical to build in these regions. Um, and then from the wildfire standpoint, we see that same thing going on in California. New developments going up all the time in areas that are really highly prone to wildfires. Um, we, you know, California is rapidly increasing their housing. I mean, they have a housing problem to begin with, but they're now building in areas that we really don't want them to build in because of how highly prone they are to wildfires. So we can't really push this all on the environment. Uh, we play a role, if not the greatest role, in these disasters. So the theory holds true for all these, and you could take any um, atmospheric um, geological hazard you want and sort of play this same game of saying, yeah, which is more important, the, the, the hazard change 
changes themselves, the atmosphere, or the geologic um, shifts or changes, or is it society and how we're building, and are we building smart? And are we using the proper materials and codes and things like that? Yeah, I, I know that in a 2018 study you wrote, in all, the total number of homes in total developed land area prone to wildfire impacts has increased by nearly 1,350% since 1940 through the conterminous United States. So I think that uh, very much highlights what you're talking about in terms of this expanding vulnerability and the increasing encroachment of the, the wildlife. Uh, urban interfaces, I've seen it referred to, particularly in places like California. I want to kind of pick up on something you said, because I know I know that there are scholars out there, uh, Roger Pilkey Jr. and others that have made the point that it's very dangerous to sort of quantify climate change in terms of increasing dollar damage. And for the reasons that you mentioned, for example, there's just more stuff in the way of hurricanes and tornadoes to be damaged. So that could somewhat bias estimates in terms of climate change. Now, of course, we know climate change is real and it's happening, and there will be increased intensity and frequency of certain events, as the scientific literature has suggested. What are your thoughts about disasters in an increasingly warming world? Yeah, that's that's a really touchy uh, and difficult concept to talk about in today's climate, and I, and you know, no pun intended, but in general, it's it's sort of difficult to bring up because people have very gut and strong feelings about climate change, and they have gut and strong feelings about maybe if they're denying climate change. Um, the, the the way that I view it is first and foremost, the climate is changing, and we are the cause. Um, Humans are affecting the climate, and we're seeing the effects of it in plenty of different hazards. We're seeing it a lot with with the speed that tropical storms are making landfall. They're sort of, you know, Harvey's a good example of just the the stalling out nature that we're seeing. We're seeing, yeah, exactly. We're seeing wildfires at astronomical rates. I mean, I just saw something last night that there's more wildfires burning right now in California than in any other previous time or any other previous year compared to this time of year. It's not supposed to be wildfire season. So when we're thinking about this this disaster in the context of climate change or disasters, is that I'm here to say that, that it's not enough to just say it's 100% climate change. It's not enough to say it's 100% societal change. It's really a balance between the two, and it's hazard-specific. A good example is heat. If heat waves and intense intense heat increases, which we're pretty sure it's going to in the future, um, that's probably one of the things we're most confident about in terms of hazards. The societal change is one factor, but yeah, heat's going to play just as as good of a role. When it gets to things like severe weather, folks like um, Victor Gensini um, and Michael Tippett and and, and Harold Brooks and, and a lot of those um, those professors and, and those individuals and researchers have shown that there will be changes to severe weather, but we're less sure of them. But one thing that we know, so folks like myself and Dr. Ashley, we sit back and go, okay, we'll let you guys study that and figure that process out. But at the same time, we have this separate issue, which is society's changing. We're putting ourselves in harm's way more and more. So we can't take this victim role because ultimately it comes back to us, especially since we are driving climate change at the same time. So we have to take a more progressive role and take a more active role in mitigating the effects of these 
these disasters. But it can be very touchy because a lot of arguments and, and issues happen when people um, start discussing these topics. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said there. I would even add that I think in terms of extreme heat, I think we're already in the midst of it. It's definitely going to yes. continue to happen. But I think with some of the heat waves now, as you noted, the, the peer review literature suggests that the DNA of climate change is already in contemporary heat waves. Yeah. Uh, I know another point, something that even my research group at University of Georgia has looked at is the impact of sort of our DNA or our footprint as humans on floods. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Neil Debbage, a uh, former PhD student of mine now at University of Texas, San Antonio, showed that the flood sort of risk in the southeast from Atlanta to Charlotte certainly is a function of what's falling from the sky and how that's changing, but it's also a function of this expanding bullseye in terms of increased runoff or reduction in infiltration of as we have less soil for the rain to seep into and more parking lots. So uh, yep. we certainly are, are familiar. Now, you mentioned mitigation. And I, I think that's right. We, we need to think about mitigation and adaptation. Do you have some thoughts on some things, practical things that we should be doing or starting to think about investing in as far as mitigation? Yeah, I think I, I do. And a lot of it is very hazard specific. Um, and, and some of it's no secret. You know, the National Flood Insurance Program was a big stab. Um, I should say the now defunct, I believe. Um, but we, we should... It was a, an attempt to take a stab at getting people out of flood-prone areas or at least having them pay their their true risk in terms of insurance rather than you and I subsidizing these individual losses um, or repetitive losses, I should say. So there are different things that we can do. I, I tend to come at this, you know, I, I'm only one researcher. I can only do so much. So I tend to focus on, again, the, the tornado hazard. And, and I think folks um, like like um, Ian Giamanco and, and all of them at the IBHS, the, the Institute for Business and Housing Standards, I believe, they, um, they work with insurance companies on how to better build and design homes, making them more wind resistant. If we're going to assume that you know, tornadoes might be 10% more frequent or shifting, you know, more towards the Ohio Valley, then we should start now building better and more um, stronger homes and reinforcing our homes. And thinking about, you know, my, my opinion is maybe not focusing so much on the monetary loss or the economic losses, but thinking about saving our lives. Um, what do we need to do to save our lives? And, and from a tornado standpoint, it's, it's sheltering. It's, it's making sure that you have access to a shelter. Um, so there's plenty of programs out there that, that um, like FEMA helps build, uh, will help counties build public shelters, but at the same time, maybe taking some of that money and giving it to individuals for personal shelters in, in areas in the southeast. From a wildfire standpoint, there's a lot of things that we can do in terms of how we maintain our yards or, or how we act um, in terms of our behavior when the wildfire conditions are, are strong. Um, unfortunately, our electrical grid causes a lot of these fires, and, and humans are still the main cause of them. So there's different ways to tackle these. It's it's sort of a, a um, not one solution will work for all of them, but it really is going to be a sort of bottom-up approach. I think the action has to be on the local scale and spread its way upward. I think that's the way that things are getting done. And believe it or not, wildfires are probably one of the best ways that that's happening. There's programs like the FireWise program that actually go into the community and teach people about how to protect themselves um, and how to prevent wildfires, um, or at least um, when they do happen, having a plan to get out.
And I, I think you mentioned something that I've often argued. I think policymakers and planners and those that uh, provide infrastructure, I think there's negligence if we ignore this information, because yeah. as you noted, there are lives and property at risk. And we from the science know that there's an increased risk of certain things. Uh, my, my colleague, Bob Inglis, former uh, Republican conservative from South Carolina, has often said it's good conservative pr- principle that if you know there's a risk for something, even if it's not guaranteed, you still plan for it. So we know that there's an increased risk uh, because of the shifting and changing climate for vulnerability to infrastructure and certain things. So that shouldn't be a left-right issue. It's a human and an infrastructure and saving lives issue. And so I think it's important to understand that the science can inform planning. And I think that's some of the things that you've talked about. Uh, As we kind of draw to a close, anything exciting, new projects coming up on your world? Well, um, we continue to work with, um, we're now taking a lot of our tornado research that's been a part of the, the, so NOAA has a a directive and a funding program that's the Vortex Southeast program. It's particularly um, looking at how we can bridge physical and social science and engineering science to better solve or help solve the the, the Southeast mobile home problem. Um, Our group, um, which involves myself, Dr. Um, Walker Ashley, Dr. Kim Cloco-McLean, Dr. Kevin Ash, um, uh, and Dr. David Roosh, who's at University of Auburn as as an engineer, we're starting to take our results and individual findings related to manufactured and mobile housing and tornadoes and get this data and information into the National Weather Services, into emergency managers. Um, next month, um, I have an integrated warning team workshop that I'm attending where we're going to be talking to a lot of emergency managers in um, Florida and, and Alabama and Mississippi to discuss sort of the findings that we have and try to figure out how to better help these individuals that we're seeing killed every single time there's a tornado in the southeast. So uh, for me, that's exciting. It's it's actually showing fruit to, to it, it's sort of any research that I do, I want to have an impact. I want it to be very applied and be able to help people sooner rather than later. So that's the ultimate goal for, for me is to, is to help individuals. So when that's happening, that's ex- very exciting. Um, I don't want my research to sit on a shelf somewhere and and just be read. I want it to be applied somewhere. So that's really where I'm at. Um, In terms of other projects, there's just, um, unfortunately, hazards are not going away. Climate change is not going away. Um, it's, it's It's a good place to be in terms of a researcher, but it's also a frustrating place to be. So there's no shortage of work to go around. And you can follow Dr. Strader's work. He maintains a website, the Stephen Strader Research Group. So check that out on the web. Also, where can you find where can people find you on social media? Yeah, Twitter's probably um, your best bet. It's just Stephen M. Strader. Um, M is in Michael for my middle name. Um, you can follow me on social media. My social media tends to all be about research. Um, I, it's very um, not so much a, a personal web personal way of reaching out to people, but it's used as a way to disseminate and share research 
or at least um, visualizations that I think the public might enjoy. So that's the best place to get a hold of me. Um, and of course, my, my website is just um, stephenmstrader.org. That's a place where you can find a lot of the research I've talked about today, um, and in particularly um, my email address if you have any questions. But the hope is, is that the things that I'm doing are, are useful to other individuals. I think that's the point I want to drive home is is I want to um, my goal is to help people. That's that's what I hope to do. And you can also check out uh, something that uh, Professor Strader wrote in Salon.com in December on weather and climate disasters. But before we get out of here, you know what time it is. It's the time for the <laughs> Geek of the Week. <laughs> this week's Geek of the Week is James Youngblood, who serves as a field service engineer for weather radars. In his position, James has probably installed more weather radars than anyone on the planet. On top of that, he's even installed many ground-based receivers for the GOES weather satellite. His work has taken him to all seven continents and to more than 65 countries. His favorite kind of weather, and Jim Cantori would love this, is thunder snow. But nothing beats tracking tornadoes with a mobile X-Man radar. Thanks for all your hard work, James. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. It's been a great conversation. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.